You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Junk bonds price to yield below 4%. Brent crude trading over 60 bucks a barrel, tripling over its post-crisis low. And Bitcoin at 47000 Let's talk about it. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by CIO of Bleakly Advisory Group and editor of The Book Report, Peter Bookvar. Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Ash, for having me. Always fun. Always a pleasure. Peter, I know we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, I mentioned oil in the intro. I know you have some thoughts there. What's your view? Well, the interesting thing about oil is that it was really the last major commodity to start rallying. Uh, we started in, we, over the last couple of months, we started to see uh, a rise in the grain prices, particularly corn, soybeans, and wheat. But we saw increases in industrial metals, particularly copper. Uh, we saw last year, obviously, uh, big gains in uh, silver, followed by gold and crude oil and, and even natural gas which is uh, teasing the $3 level, uh, were sort of the last major ones to, to, to rally. And I think it's, it's, it's all part of a, a, a similar theme that there's been a, a dearth of investment. We've had uh, Saudis been very disciplined with respect to the supply side. And that while we've seen this collapse in demand in 2020, uh, we're beginning to see an improvement on the demand side. And really the collapse now is on the supply side. And I think that that is leading to finally a rise in oil prices that I think will surprise to the upside. Because it's not just uh, supply um, caps that we're seeing now. This goes back to 2014 when oil prices collapsed. We saw a sharp decline in investment in, in offshore drilling. That was more than offset by the uh, increase in shale. But the legacy of that lack of investment continues. And now you have shale that has sort of been cut down by the legs that uh, is combining for uh, a supply response that is more than offsetting the decline in demand. And now you have a full commodity rally uh, with really nobody left out. Right. Yeah, I should probably mention uh, that Saudis uh, announced some supply-side cuts, curbs on their side. Uh, I'm curious, why specifically is this the, la the laggard at the party, Peter? Do you have a view? I think because 2020 people really focused on just the collapse in demand. And, and, and that was their only focus, not really paying attention to what that supply response was going to be to that sharp decline in demand. So now you have slowly improving demand, which will accelerate the summer as the vaccine gets more mass rolled out, on top of supply that is really pretty disciplined. And, and Saudis really unilaterally saying that they're going to cut a million barrels a day, I think it was, uh, that they, they've been... They really want oil prices to be higher. And uh, I think that discipline, people are really beginning to take note. Yeah. And as you mentioned, part of a broader inflationary story on the commodity side, uh, give us a little bit of context for that and explain how you think about it. Well, what I, what I what started to ring my, my inflationary uh, sort of signals was back even as early as April, May, when you started to see sharp increases in food prices at the supermarket. Right. 
because obviously you had that rush of demand, but you started to see, wow, these supply chains are all screwed up yeah. because of COVID and that shelves just weren't getting refilled. Now, that ended up being somewhat temporary in the sense that, that, that the supply chain started to catch up, but they're still not caught up. And then we saw other supply chain upheavals in, in, in different areas of, of, of the global economy, particularly uh, the transportation side, where you have a lot of passenger flights that take people but also take cargo. Well, you can imagine all the flights that, that aren't happening because of the sharp decline in, in passenger demand. So a lot of that, that cargo shift had to go to FedEx, UPS, and others, but right. there, aren't, there wasn't enough capacity. So sharp increases there. Um, you, you've now had, obviously, issues with, with auto, the auto sector and getting parts and now getting semiconductors. So that's then um, moving people to buy used cars. So you're seeing double-digit increases in used car prices. And the big question is, is how long uh, will this last? We're seeing the sharpest increases in goods prices year over year that we've seen in many years. Right. Because uh, on a secular basis, we typically get services inflation. We get goods deflation because of technology and production uh, efficiencies that, that tend to keep a lid on goods prices. But now you've seen that big rise in goods prices. And it's a question of how does the service side of the inflation equation sort of shake out? Uh, a key part of that answer will be what do rents do, and uh, we'll see what it, what it what it says tomorrow within CPI. We know we're seeing uh, a sharp decline in rents in New York, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, but we're seeing increases that are offsetting that to an extent in a lot of other metropolitan cities, and particularly also in some in, in, in suburban markets. Yeah, you know, Peter, you've made so many interesting points there. The first thing that I was struck by is that the, the your analysis of inflation very clear. This is not the inflation that we read about in our college macroeconomics textbooks. Disruption to supply chains. We do not see a wage push inflation here. How do we quantify it? How do we think about it when some of the models that we've used historically, at least, to apply uh, to inflationary pressures uh, just don't seem to be present? Well, you had the, the the old Phillips curve that that sort of got conflated. People said, oh, if you have tight labor market, low unemployment, that leads to higher inflation. But that's not what the Phillips curve said. It said that you had tight labor markets, low unemployment, that leads to higher wages. But that right. doesn't necessarily lead to higher prices. So people misinterpreted what that ended up being. Right. But that was just, there, there is not one avenue towards inflation. And there's yeah. not one type of inflation. Obviously, this is, and we're talking about Consumer price inflation. Uh, we, you know, we obviously have asset price inflation and 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 so on. But this is mostly supply driven. Right. And the question is, is what happens then when you start to get this pickup on the demand side for services? Do does that lessen the pressure on the good side? Because remember, 2020 consumers shifted their spending behavior towards goods, towards RVs towards redoing their kitchen in their backyard right uh, to those that moved to the suburbs they bought a car um, and 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 that sort of thing as away from going out for dinner going to the movies going to see shows going to travel and so on yeah. so you're going to get this the shift in spending away from goods towards services again uh, and will that be enough to relieve a lot of the constraints we're seeing on the supply side that said though this is a global phenomenon and just because U.S. consumers decide to shift some of their behavior or, or other consumers, you're still going to get, I think, a global demand for spending on just a lot of different things that will further put upward pressure on, on um, both commodity prices and general inflation. 
Then you throw in, of course, in the next couple months, you get the easy comparisons, but throw away the base effects. I think even the back half of the year, you're going to see inflation numbers that are going to surprise on the upside. And to your original point about you know, the old school way of looking at it is, is wages. You know, I still hear right. economists say, well, if there's no wage growth and if there's still a lot of people unemployed, how can you get inflation? Right. Well, we're, we're seeing it right now. The inflation on the good side is not an opinion. It's a fact. And you're seeing it in the numbers and you can ask every single company that is, is either making something or having something that has to be transported or is putting stuff on the shelves. They're paying more for things. And just one anecdote, just to throw out an example, I have a friend that's in the food and beverage distribution business, just sending beverages and, and snacks to convenience stores, restaurants. And he's showing me some of his invoices. He just got, he just got an invoice from Wrigley, Moore's Wrigley, 10% increases on all the stuff he buys from them. Mm. From from Kellogg's on Rice Krispie treats and Pop Tarts, he's getting five to seven percent price increases. Now, to you and me, paying for that is not a big deal, but for low in, lower income people, you know that adds up, particularly those that either don't have a job or are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, such an important point and such an, a key contrast uh, against PCE, where we're not seeing anywhere near five to seven, or and certainly not ten percent. But you point out something that I, I think that's such a great model. First of all, that that uh, tight employment markets, tight labor markets, meaning low uh, unemployment, does not necessarily lead to higher prices. It leads to higher wages. And then conversely, uh, the notion that it is not exclusively higher wages that can lead to higher prices. Exactly, and and and. Right now, we are actually seeing higher wages. If you're if you're a construction worker in in, in the whole building industry, if you're an electrician, a plumber, and so on, or you're 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 a, you're a um, carpenter, you're in high demand. You can command any wage you want. If you're a truck driver, you can command any wage you want. So, in the areas of transportation and, and goods production where there's tightness because of of um, when you think about like a major factory, for example, because of COVID, you have to shift around um, schedules and you have people calling out sick and you have to spread people out on assembly lines. Just people are just less productive. Just the production of things is costing more. And, right. and, and I think that 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 and, and that is leading to general prices. Now, whether increases now, whether that leads to higher wages, like I said, in some selective areas, clearly is. If you're a restaurant, well, obviously you can find any waiter you want, any time you want. But right. the, those are lower wages to begin with anyway. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. You know, Peter, while we're talking about these broad sort of macroeconomic themes and tying them into what's actually happening in the real economy, I mentioned in the introduction uh, junk bonds now priced uh, to yield below 4%, lowest ever. What's happening with triple C credits and below? And what's the context that that then forms for where we are in markets? Well, it's interesting because on the investment grade side, we seem to have reached a limit as to the drop in rates. And that investment grade credit is really trading with longer term treasuries. Right. So you're seeing no more yield compression in investment grade. In fact, you're seeing some uh, yield rise in investment grade. So if you're a credit investor, you're like, okay, gig is up on investment grade. I need to now start trying to get some more yield and going further out on the risk spectrum in investment grade, particularly as you mentioned, the triple C's. Uh, and also then you throw in that 
that part of, of credit is obviously more sensitive to an improving economy, which people are obviously betting on between right. the vaccine and, and whatever government spending we're going to see, where investment grade is, is, is more of just a yield play because you assume, you know, Apple or Amazon or, or other areas, or even if the triple B will, will pay you back. Uh, so the question now is, is, is this trip below 4% in the aggregate of, of high yield? Uh, is this really now stretching the limits, particularly now that you have long rates going up and, and what that will potentially do to the economy if that were to continue? Yeah, you know, so many, again, important points there. I think and for- One last point, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah please. One of, the, one of the interesting characteristics of the corporate credit world right now is that durations are at record highs because a lot of companies have turned out uh, their their bond payments because investors have demanded duration because they need higher yield. The corporate credit market and, and just credit in general, even treasuries, are more sensitive now than ever to changes in long-term interest rates. So let me just jump in, Peter, because this is an important point. And for 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 folks who are maybe uh, investors in the equity markets who don't really understand fixed income and that level of granularity, talk a little bit about what duration is and why it matters so much when rates are very low. So it's measuring a bond sensitivity to changes in interest rates. So if the duration of a bond is seven, well, then for every one percentage point move in interest rates, that bond will move seven percent. So if uh, a rate declines by if the treasury rate declines by one percent, theoretically that bond should rally in price by seven percent and and vice versa. So while right now the, the investing market world is focused on the improving economy for high yield and the, the search for yield, if you continue to see a rise in longer term interest rates, that can then start to make investors more sensitive to the, the, the high duration levels of these bonds. And that right. you can see still an improving economy, maybe, but maybe a higher cost of credit uh, if rates continue higher. So it's just something that we have to keep our eye on um, for credit and what it means for valuations generally if rates continue to rise. Now, you also alluded to the compression that we're seeing in terms of yield spreads. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, corporate uh, investment grade and, and treasuries now, as you mentioned, very close. Give us a little bit of context on why that is the case. You mean in, in terms of um, why rates are rising or? Why the spread between investment grade corporate credits and oh, treasuries are so tight? Yeah, right. So I, I think when when people I, again in in this this search for yield, which we obviously know is 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 ferocious, uh, I, I think that that in addition to the Fed, which obviously in March said they're going to start buying investment grade. So in a way, people think that investment grade all of a sudden has this this Fed backstop. Right. And while it's obviously not officially guaranteed by the U.S. government, uh, there's a sense, well, if there's any dislocations in investment grade, well, the Fed has has our back and they will do what they can to smooth market functioning, they like to say. So I, I think there is a Fed premium uh, in the investment grade world that uh, the Fed uh, unfortunately has created because then it uh, you know, creates its own problems with people uh, not doing their credit homework and just buying bonds just because the Fed is. Right. So basically, uh, you have the Fed uh, with a, a put on on this on this market on the investment grade market. So people then go and buy these bonds, and they start to trade a lot like Treasuries in terms of yield, because there's this perception that there will be this liquidity backstop in the event of a dislocation in markets. Right. It, it, exactly. Uh, it was a dangerous road. I think the Fed went down, but it certainly has tre tremendously helped the market this year.
Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I have to say, Peter, uh, my friend Stephanie Lansman over at CNBC wrote an article uh, about some of your comments there, and the headline was a quote, another epic parabolic bubble. What are your thoughts on what's happening in U.S. equity markets? Obviously, record closes, uh, I think, seven or eight on the S&P 500. Pretty extraordinary time. Well, the, the, the epic bubble truly is in the world's bond markets. It, it's the greatest bubble in, in, in financial history. But it's been going on for years, and it can continue to go on for years. Now, inflation is the one thing that, that would pop it um, if, if these trends continue. But that's where the, the, the true historic bubble is. But if there's a bubble in the cost of money, particularly with negative interest rates, I mean, negative interest rate, rate bond, uh, yielding bonds is the epitome of a bubble because it's the ultimate hot potato because you hold it to maturity, you lose money. So in that kind of a world, that is the pretty much the definition of bubble. And then everything priced off rates, then you can argue, is in a bubble too. But just because something's in a bubble doesn't mean it can't grow even bigger and it can't go on for years. It's right. just trying to figure out whether you want to be part of that bubble and, and be smart enough to know when the right time to get off is. And, and what are the things that can pop that bubble? What's the pin to that bubble? And I think clearly, again, as I'll say again, it's the direction of inflation, the direction of long-term interest rates uh, will be the eventual pin. And that's why right now the stock market is saying, well, rates are rising because the economy is getting better and we're going to spend another $2 trillion. You know, you hear that every single rate hiking cycle, every time the Fed starts to raise rates, oh, it's no big deal. They're doing it because the economy is good. Keep buying. And then eventually you hit a wall. So the question is, is where is that wall? Where is that yield wall on the long end? Because we know the Fed's not going to change rates on the short end for years. Is it one and a quarter, one and a half in the 10 years? It's one and three quarters, two. Is it two, two and a half, three on the 30 year? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But at least I know that the things that would, that would pop this are in motion now for the first time in a while. And we just have to really watch how this unfolds closely. Well, so that's a really interesting point. Uh, what are you watching? You mentioned, obviously, the the 10 and the 30. Uh, rates are behaving differently than they have in the past in terms of historical correlations, relationships. What are you watching for and how will you know if something begins to happen? Well, we're, we're seeing a, a pretty sharp rise in inflation expectations that's being built into the tips market. The, the five-year inflation break-even is at the highest level since 2013. Now, if you remember 2013, th around the summer, oil prices were $95 to $100. Today, we're, we're just below 60, and we're at the same level in terms of inflation expectations, because maybe that implies the, the market sees that, that the rise in inflation expectations are more than just oil prices, where historically, they're very correlated. Maybe that it's something broader. And we're not just seeing it in the US. You're seeing rising inflation expectations in Europe. The five-year, five-year euro inflation swap is at a multi-year high. We're seeing a rise in long-end yields in Japan and a rise in their break-evens. Even though they're very low, the trajectory is still higher. So I think these are the things that, that, that I'm watching. Obviously, commodity prices. We're going to see CPI tomorrow. I think the rent component is going to be very important, as I mentioned earlier, because it's 30% of CPI. And for the next couple of months, I mean, the Fed has already told you that they're going to look past any rise in the inflation statistics because of right. the base effects. And, and they see everything the Fed sees that they don't like, they call it transitory. Oil prices are up. They call it transitory. Anything they don't like, it's transitory. 
But you get to the summer, you get to the back half of this year, we'll see what's transitory and what is not. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think one, one thing to add on with the long end is because Treasury is going to be issuing so much paper again this year and that there's only so much firepower from the banks, pension funds, insurance companies in the U.S. because foreigners continue to, to reduce their presence in the U.S. Treasury market. Will the Fed be forced to increase QE to deal with all the supply at the same time inflationary pressures are rising? So we are potentially uh, headed towards uh, a really interesting inflection point if the inflation numbers become more sustainable in the eyes of the market and how the Fed is going to finance all this issuance. Yeah, everything they don't like is transitory. That really cuts through it and it makes an important point. And also, I would add uh, this notion of uh, symmetric inflation rate targeting. So the idea that, uh, you know, if we were below for, for X number of years, I'm not exactly certain what they mean by symmetric, but I take it at the coarsest level that but that basically means, hey, we're willing to let rates rise uh, above our 2% target in order to somehow balance uh, the time that we spent below the target. Yeah. And, and just to put something real life behind that, imagine... Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, going to a Walmart and talking to somebody who's just cashed their paycheck at, at 12.01 a.m. and say, you know what? You've had inflation the last couple of years. That's only been about one and a half percent. I hope you don't mind if we let it ride like two and a half to three over the next couple of years because we have this symmetric target. Is that OK? Is that OK for you? You know, it's such it's a nonsense, theoretical, econometric model spitting out um, just drivel about what does the next couple of years have in, of inflation have anything to do with prior rates of inflation. It, it's it's um, they should be careful what they wish for. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about, and for me, if you're a retail investor and you're looking at you're looking at U.S. equity markets, when you look at the chart of the S&P 500, when you pull up the five-year chart, I don't know if we can bring that up on screen right now, but when you look at that chart, it's striking to me that all we see is this tiny little divot uh, around March and April uh, of uh, of 2020, uh, and then the the basically the five-year great. Uh, growth rate here uh, in terms of the price of the S&P 500 just keeps rising at the same rate. Has there not been any impairment to the broader economy that would suggest that perhaps that you know, U.S. equity should be trading at something of a discount? Well, it, it's, it's very interesting because over the last 10 years, every pullback of substance, and, and a lot of the pullbacks over the last 10 years happened when the Fed ended QE and the Fed started raising interest rates for the first time, every sell-off was just a V-bottom. Because either the Fed stopped, you know, they restarted QE, or they, they, they went really slow with rates, or we know the, the end of 2018, Powell backed off. Everything was, was, was a V-bottom. Whereas historically, bear markets, they can, be, they can bleed you to death. Like the worst bear market is just the ones that are death by a thousand cuts, where they just sort of bleed away. But every single time, it's like, it's like a stick save in a butte. They they come something comes along, usually central bank related, that that results in this in this V bottom. And the the, the question now is because the Fed's not going to be raising rates. And let's just say, and let's just use our imagination and take this steps further, that we do get deeper inflation. We get start to get see three, three and a half, four percent type PCE CPI numbers. And all of a sudden the 10 year instead of being 115 is all of a sudden is two, two and a half. And then all of a sudden, what's the Fed going to do? 
Are they going to raise rates and then essentially put us into a recession? Or maybe the long end puts us into recession on its own. Uh, or do they just let, fan this even further and try to fight the market and expand QE, which would then threatens the value of the dollar, which then leads to potentially higher inflation? It's that type of scenario where I don't know if you're going to get the V bottom. Because the Fed is, is, is sort of, I don't, you know, they're never all in because they can always do more of what they've been doing. But they're all in in terms of what the potential effectiveness, effectiveness of what they do going forward. Just like the Bank of Japan keeps doing the same thing over and over again. You know, up until the past year, their stock market was, you know, 50% below where it was 30 years ago. And you look at, look at Europe, look at all the QE that, that the ECB has done and negative interest rates. The French stock market is still below where it was in 2007. And the Italian stock market is 50% below where it was in 2007, even with all that easing. So that, that, that is the scenario where you don't get that V bottom. Again, I don't know where that, that happens, where, where we fall from or when it ha or whatever. But um, sorry to be long-winded here. But uh, yeah, every, every decline has been a V bottom. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, that's exactly the the important context and detail we need. And I, I wonder when you talk about uh, when you talk about other uh, when you talk about other developed markets, is some of the flight of capital into the U.S. is this just you know finding the least dirty shirt in the laundry? As you point out, these uh, other markets, uh, you know, are significantly below where they were uh, where they were a, a decade ago. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, you've got uh, you've got like Japan, for example, which has still never regained what whatever it was the 1988 high on the Nikkei 225. Yeah, a lot of it is what the Bank of Japan and the ECB have done to their banking system. Uh, Japanese bank stock index is down, I think, 85% from where it was 30 years ago. Uh, the European bank stock index is down like 70 or 80% where it was in 07. And they have, they have well, Europe has really no big tech. And uh, I think that that's why their markets have lagged. And that's why we've had a stellar market here because of the, of the technology presence in our markets. Yeah. And it's why Asian markets have done well because they also have uh, a, a tech presence you know, outside of what's there in Japan. Uh, but you know some some of the leading tech companies, whether it's Taiwan Semi or Alibaba or or uh, Tencent or whatever, uh, they've been able to sort of keep up with us over the last couple of years. But without that tech presence, you know, right. you're sort of left for dead. Yeah, and also, and this is an area that I'm certainly no expert in, uh, but in Europe and I believe in Japan as well, far less developed capital markets, far less developed debt markets. So the capacity for companies to get access to capital is basically limited to the banking system. When the banking system is under distress, uh, that really squeezes the capacity for growth. It, it, exactly. And that's why I refer to the policies of the ECB and BOJ as not accommodative or you know, uber easy. It's actually restrictive. Because if you cut off the, the profitability legs of your transmission mechanism, that being the banks, then how are you going to expect faster growth? And instead, you're going to have slower growth because it's small and medium-sized businesses that need those loans. But because banks have squeezed, they've gotten their profit margins on loans got, gotten squeezed, they're not really inclined to be generous in lending out that money. And therefore, you're going to have a sclerotic economy and a restrictive monetary policy. So here we have Mario Draghi, who's getting cheered as the next prime minister of Italy, and he's like this, this god. 
but he's he destroyed the European banking system and he destroyed the European bond market. You know, Mario Draghi, of course, is not running for the premiership of, of the European uh, Union. He's running it for in Italy. So I guess that maybe this is like one of these internal dynamics plays. He's benefited Italy, uh, the periphery uh, uh, over the core. It's a very complicated problem. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, Peter, we've talked a lot uh, about the uh, sort of abstract high-level problems, the challenges that are happening in markets, in the debt markets, uh, and with uh, the global macro scenario. For retail investors, uh, what would you say are some of the most important things that they can focus on to see if the thesis is unfolding uh, as you see it? I, I think keep your eye on commodity prices. Keep your eye on the direction of the U.S. dollar. Uh, keep your eye on long-term interest rates, market-driven interest rates. I think the 30-year bond is actually the most important part of the curve to be watching right now in terms of yield because it is the furthest out there and thus least manipulated by the Fed. Uh, the 10-year, because of their QE and, and, and short-rate policy, still has sort of a, a magnet somewhat, not to the same extent as, as the shorter end, but the 30-year, I think, is a good measure uh, of, of the market's expectations of where inflation and, and growth expectations are going. And so I, th I think that's really going to be key here because if, again, if there's something that changes the current narrative of markets, it would be inflation, it would be rates because inflation is kryptonite to monetary policy. The reason why central banks have gotten away with everything they've gotten away with over the last 10 plus years is because consumer price inflation has been very subdued. If all of a sudden that changes, it changes the ability for them to react to anything, and it also pressures them to reverse some of the policies that they put in place, particularly in 2020. Yeah, that sentence really is a keystone, isn't it? That the reason that central banks have been able to do what they've done is that there has not been consumer price inflation. Exactly. And, and particularly what they did in 2020 was because of COVID. If you start to see you know, light at the end of the tunnel with, with COVID, even though it still can be with us for the next couple of years, uh, how, you know, how are they going to respond to that? How is, is, is Powell going to respond if in the latter part of this year, CPI is printing 3% and you can't use the base effect excuse anymore? Yeah. So final thought here, because you mentioned this particular metric, the 30-year Treasury yield, right now at just a hair below 2%, about 195 basis points. Uh, the low on this, some around 1.2% at the uh, real nadir of the crisis. What are your expectations there? And what would you be looking for in terms of a deviation from those expectations? I, I think it's going to two and a half. I, I think the 10 years going to one and a half, one and three quarters. And people can say, well, that's still very low. But it's the rate of change that's important. And right. all you need is small changes in interest rates on a very large pile of debt with historically high duration levels. And that could have a magnified impact on uh, the world's bond markets. Then you throw in the housing market that has obviously been lifted by very low mortgage rates. You get a rise in long rates combined with these aggressive home price increases. You know, th there's a lot of potential accidents that can happen if we do see rates at those levels. Now, where I could be wrong, if, if the Fed decides to implement yield curve control because they don't like the rise in interest rates, well, they don't like the rise in interest rates, don't root for higher inflation. And with yield curve control, I already think they've instituted it just by saying that they're going to keep the Fed funds rate at zero until 2024. That essentially is yield curve control. And then where I can be wrong is if in the second half, the supply chain starts to catch up 
and that the upward pressure on goods prices and transportation prices begins to ease, you know, then then maybe this inflation story, you know, doesn't unfold how I think it might. Yeah. Peter, the perfect merger of macro and markets. Peter Bookfar, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ash. Appreciate having me on. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.